I am joined again today by Mark Kanoy for a very special episode of Between the Levees. Mr. Kanoy, thank you for coming. Happy to be here, Tim. I really uh, enjoyed doing the uh, the last podcast that we did and look forward to uh, seeing what else we might find to talk about. Yes, sir. You did uh, you did ascend to first place on Total Listens very quickly last time around. Uh, we'd like to discuss today the history uh, of barging and sort of the uh, process or development of matching up to a customer, shipping cargo to destination, that whole thing. So please begin uh, just a rundown of the history of barging in the United States. I know a lot more of this than I do. Uh, I was only born in 1959, so I haven't been around that long. Uh, but I have hung around most of my life with guys that are 10 to 15 years older than me. And during my time at ACBL, I had the privilege of uh, recounting their 100 years of history. So, but just, you know, thinking about uh, stories my dad would tell me, and as I, I joined just kind of the, uh, what most people would call the modern era of uh, inland barging, uh, you know, really developed during World War II, all in an effort to support the war effort. You saw the government come in and take over uh, many of the nation's shipyards, modernize them, turn them into, you know, a, a war building machines, you know, building ships and landing crafts and things like that, uh, building towboats and barges to haul fuel oil and uh, other supplies. And uh, as the war, you know, uh, came to an end, uh, there was a lot of those assets that then were available back to the private industry and uh, certainly set up a Jeff boat uh, for uh, as a modern shipyard in today's environment and many others that were involved in that. Uh, building of those vessels. Um, and then, you know, uh, Federal Barge Lines was formed out of that, the Valley Line. And, uh, you know, that all took place up through, I think, you know, the late 50s, if you will. Um, that's kind of where uh, I started uh, to learn about it from my dad. My dad was a, a young man that grew up in uh, uh, southern Indiana, ran away from home down to ended up at Union Lock in uh, Evansville back in uh, just before the start of the war back in 1943 and worked on a towboat until he was uh, drafted, came out of that, went back to work on a towboat. So then that's kind of where my history starts is just stories from him. He was a, 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 an engineer to start with. They called him Hot Rod. I guess he had some pretty good mechanical skills and and then he ended up tanking barges and was injured and went into the wheelhouse. So I think my dad went into the wheelhouse about the time I was born. And that's when, uh, you know, most of those stories uh, really started to develop. And uh, I think, uh, you know, the, the kind of the, I said that was the modern era, but if, if there's uh, whatever you would phrase the, the current era, if you will. Uh, so you saw, uh, literally boats turned from uh, steam power to diesel power um, during that period of time. And I think by the mid 60s or so, probably by the late 50s, uh, anything being built was certainly, you know, diesel powered, uh, twin screw, single or twin screw propeller driven vessels. And I'm sure there's a lot of leeway here. There's lots of one offs, I'm sure. But you know, certainly by the early 60s, you were developing what we would call the current uh, era of, of the barge industry as you started to standardize horsepower, 
Uh, you started to standardize traffic patterns, uh, importantly, barge sizes, because by now you have standardized the uh, canalization of the Ohio River, the Upper River, the Illinois. Now everything was going to the 10, uh, what, 110 by 600 foot uh, lock. So now you're building barges that'll fit into that. Uh, moving away from the old standard, which was 26 by 175. Uh, I think you went to uh, some stumbos. They stretched those out to 195. Uh, there was even a short period of time where people like Sioux City, New Orleans, as one, built 40-footers to match up to the 26-footers. But then I'm going to say end of the 50s, early 60s, you standardized to uh, what we call the, uh, you know, a super jump or a jumbo, I guess we call them a jumbo barge, which is 35 by 195. And today would probably be 35 by 200 uh, would be the standard. And I, I think I helped participate in a little bit of that working with uh, over at uh, Memco Barge Lines with uh, Chris Parsonage and Harry Waddington and a fellow by the name of Mike Rushing figured out that, uh, even though the lock man would tell you 595 was the maximum length into a lock, uh, we figured out that you could put 600 foot in a 600 foot lock. And uh, somewhere along in there, probably by the mid 90s, everybody was building 200 foot barges. Doesn't seem like a lot, but five foot in a barge is, uh, you know, another, five, uh, what, two and a half percent cargo space. So uh, I saw, I guess, uh, my first. Uh, on hands uh, was 1973. I, I was just 14 years old. I lived 12 miles away from this harbor service. Uh, I had rowed the boats with my dad. And so, uh, you know, the mate on there would always take me out on tow and teach me a few things. So I, uh, I, I knew what was going on there. And uh, uh, even though I, I was just a kid, I, I thought I could help him out. And uh, uh, so that was 1973. I, I remember that time. Uh, uh, I think that might be the same year that the Waterways Freight Bureau went away and the barge lines were uh, deregulated. Up until that time, uh, even barge carriers were regulated very much like uh, trucks and railroads were at the time. And um, so they were regulated up until then. And then that point is when... Um, you know, we really started to see the traffic patterns develop in those mid-70s as what we see today. Uh, before that, it was basically a northbound business. You were basically bringing raw materials up the river for, for you know, manufacturing of, of steel and uh, other things and uh, support this, you know, infrastructure with uh, clinker and, and cement and bringing things up the river, but there was really nothing to go back down. But then we started to export grain. And as soon as we started to export grain, then you saw people like ADM built a barge line and uh, Bungie was, was building barges. Cargill was certainly uh, already in that phase to some degree. They were probably one of the most mature ones. I, I think I'm getting that right. Um, but then you started to kind of see a proliferation of of all the grain shippers got involved in the mid seventies and you started to move to the bigger horsepower boats, you know, the five and 6,000 horsepower boats that are pretty standard today. Before that, I, I remember, uh, well, geez, the, the Norman brothers, they ran 1800 horsepower boats on the Illinois river forever, uh, moving 15 barge toes and maybe have to cut back to 12 or even nine during extreme high water. And 
but uh, up through that period of time, uh, you know, a 3,800 was a big boat. I, re I remember the guys down on the lower running, you know, 16 barge toes and uh, a lifetime business mentor of mine, Paul Striegel, was wondering how, how would we ever find enough barges to move if we could move 16 barges at a time on a 3,600 horsepower boat. Um, and of course, those barges that were coming in back then were steel covered barges. Uh, uh, most of the ones that existed before the steel lift tops were really steel roll tops because the industry served the steel industry more so than anybody. If you remember back then, Ohio Barge Line, I think uh, um, Oren talked about that, about Ohio Barge Line. You know, so you had to have those telescoping doors to fit those long pieces of steel in and out and be able to close the barge up quickly in case it started to rain. So I, I remember as the grain business developed, they converted a lot of those to steel, uh, not, not converted the, the, the roll tops, but they started building steel lift tops. And that uh, was quite a day when they introduced the, the Proform fiberglass covers uh, as, as starting out and going through the whole barge maintenance and repair part of my career. Those steel covered doors were, man, were they heavy. Uh, it was so much uh, easier to work on the fiberglass covers. I remember that. Um, but what year was it when fiberglass covers were introduced, roughly? You know, I, I you know, somebody's going to come on and say that. Um, I'm going to guess sometime in the mid mid seventies. I don't remember exactly. Um, I want to say that uh, didn't Jack Lambert have something to do with that up at uh, Twin City Barge? Um, Somebody, somebody will know the answer to that. Uh, Proform. Somebody developed Proform. I, I'm, I don't know. It could have been in the late '70s or in the eight, early '80s. Uh, I, I, gosh, it seems like to me it must have been in the '70s. Uh, but that was that was a big difference. And standardizing all the barges was a big difference too. So, you know, by that time everybody had you know 195 by 35s by 12 foot hulls. That was the the basic barge. And of course today. You know, at least in the grain business, in the covered business, many barges are now 14 foot hulls with five foot combings and high cube covers. And, you know, you load them down to 11 and a half foot, maybe even 12 foot out of Greenville or Lake Providence down there and uh, change that change that industry a lot. It, you know, it's something that gets by people quite a bit uh, if you're not familiar with the business. But it took us from you know, loading 1,750 tons in a barge to 2,300, 2,400 tons uh, in a single barge. Uh, big difference in the industry. Uh, I don't want to skip by a lot of that stuff, but, you know, that, that was all being developed at that time. I, I th There were some very specialized trades that uh, the Valley Line had some really unique barges, uh, I think, for hauling oats and paper products. It seems like federal barge lines did too. They had, uh, Tim, you might even see an occasional T barge or F barge in your fleet. They'd be the old ones that you got from federal barge lines. Quite a the few, barges, quite a few T barges. Yeah. Well, the T barge just stands for 13 foot hull. That's what the T stands for. And the F stood for 14 foot hulls so that they wouldn't get them mixed up. A pretty simple numbering scheme, right? But sure. they built some bigger barges early on for some very special trades, uh, not to get the draft as much as to get the payload 
because the products were so light, uh, the paper products. And I think uh, oats was another one. And then, of course, as we grew more and more soybeans and started growing those, you needed uh, bigger barges as well. So, you know, we're somewhere around the mid-70s. Uh, business is really booming. Everything's growing. And then, you know, 1980, Jimmy Car uh, Carter and the grain embargo, you know, set in. And that kind of that kind of threw business in the loop for a while. Uh, I think Oren mentioned that, too. Uh, you know, the whole 1980s. I, I remember my dad and I, we, we started the business there in uh, Pekin in 1985, and it was one of the lowest points in the business, uh, in the industry. I, I remember in the early 80s, I was, uh, early part of my career was influenced by a guy uh, out of Marseilles by the name of Danny Partridge, who owned Marseilles Marine Harbor Service in Ottawa. And, um, you know, just gave me an opportunity to learn a lot of stuff about about the river business, and you know, from the harbor uh, service perspective. Um, gosh, I lost my train of thought there. God darn it! Um, what was I talking about, Tim? You said uh, a a friend of yours from Ottawa. Yeah, that was Danny Partridge. Anyway, so we're you know we're around the. Oh, I, I was thinking about the early 80s. I went down to Pekin, Illinois, and that's when I started working in the in the harbor service down there. And uh, I oh, I, I remember what I was going to say, uh, uh, how bad business was then, you know, and interest rates were in the high teens. And I imagine what that would be like trying to run a business today. And at the same time, having your number one cash crop export uh, be embargoed to the Russians. So uh, that was a pretty rough time during that period of time. And if I'm not mistaken, that's, you know, around that time, you saw a lot of investments uh, in the industry through some incentive tax credits. And you saw a lot of barges uh, getting built by individuals. And uh, somewhere along in there, maybe the mid 80s, uh, if Chris Parsonage listens to this, he would know his dad, uh, Noble C. Parsonage, uh, I'm pretty sure this story was treasure over at uh, uh, St. Louis ship and uh, they were building these barges and they were even you know helping to put together packages for investors to build barges this is during the period of time doctors lawyers uh, baseball stars uh, you know other people that had a lot of money and were looking for tax uh, advantages were building barges and then all of a sudden uh, what do we do with them and I think Noble Parsonage would probably be uh, given the credit of coming up with the barge management concept. And that's where Memco Barge came from, Marine Equipment Management Corporation. And quickly, a few others sprung up, Frontier Gateway and uh, Robert Miller, I remember back in those days. Um, I don't remember a lot of the others, but there was a handful of them. And so uh, that was the first big barge line I went to work for. And that was kind of a change in the industry where you saw a lot of the investment coming in from outside the industry, not the companies growing themselves because they didn't need barges. So uh, I don't know if the shipyards went out and found the investors or the investors found the shipyards through, you know, tax accountants. But uh, at any rate, the two matched up and, you know, uh, those heavy assets cost a lot. So they spin off a lot of uh, a depreciation and, and you could literally use this tax credit to, to get a barge built, at least the down payment. And so we started this era of barge management companies. And uh, I certainly rode on that bandwagon. 
uh, with Memco uh, starting in 94. Uh, but they they were already, uh, you know, pretty big into it. There were some others out there that were, uh, I think it was Carl Linder uh, that built the American, uh, um, what was it, American Barge Company, uh, all, all the uh, names, uh, astrological name boats, the Spartan, the Spartacus, uh, I forget the names of them now. Uh, you remember those? I think you guys ended up with a fair number of those boats, Ingram and ACBL, uh, all of that stuff ended up going through uh, hands several times. Well, you went through the, kind of that whole era of, of barge management and what have you that followed the, uh, the deregulation period, the introduction of the grain guys. Um, and then you saw, you know, a weakness in the market and the shipyards wanted to stay busy. They built these investor barges and, and that went along for a pretty good while. Uh, and there's still a fair amount of that out there today. Uh, you certainly still have barge management companies out there that uh, work alongside of the, the integrated barge lines as well. Uh, you might note that I, I haven't talked much about the tank barge business, Tim. Um, I, I'm really not a tank barge guy. I think to, to be a true tank barge guy, you got to be in Houston. That's where the business is. Uh, I didn't do much with tank barges until I joined ACBL. Uh, and even though we had nearly 500 tank barges, if I didn't have a team of experts over there, I'd have been in a world of trouble, but I did, and 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 they they did a great job with that. So I I don't really know a lot of the growth on the tank barge side, but I do know that uh, uh, ACBL was uh, early into that, even before World War II. Uh, I believe they were hauling some petroleum products down along the Gulf Coast, and that business was, uh, you know, uh, being born and and, and coming along. Um, I'm really kind of been a dry cargo guy most of my life, and. Uh, and then I went back uh, following uh, Memco, which was a barge management company. And there were still a couple regulated businesses out there, uh, or at least regulated from uh, the operational side, not the operational side, from the company ownership side. I went to work for American Electric Power, which was a, a regulated utility company. And, and the vast majority of the work that we did initially was for that regulated utility company. So. Uh, even though we weren't uh, regulated in, in that definition uh, by any particular uh, government entity, we, we serviced a, a, you know, a regulated industry. And, th and that was a really interesting uh, time. And then, uh, you know, really spent the last 10 years at, uh, at, at ACBL where uh, we, we'd like to say we're a one-stop shop. We could uh, pretty much do anything that you wanted to do in the inland uh, river industry. And, so that that that's kind of what you see mirrored today is kind of what, I guess what I'd call the current uh, industry where you know you have pretty defined traffic patterns and barge companies and customer uh, you know vendor relationships and service you know various river segments that's all pretty well defined today not a lot of new traffic patterns not a lot of new commodities coming to the industry. Uh, uh, you know, most most everything that we move is because uh, it, it's the only way that the volume uh, can get moved is by barge. And uh, so maybe we can talk about that a little bit or maybe I should stop and see what you think. Well, one quick question before my next, uh, I guess, my next big one. Uh, I believe a fiberglass cover, a single fiberglass cover weighs one ton. Is that correct? Um. 
you know, you're, you're, you're certainly in the ballpark. Gosh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed by this because I used to be able to rattle that right off because I knew what a, a set of covers weighed. But I, I think it's maybe just slightly less than that. I want to say a set of, a, a, a set of covers, uh, eight or nine. I, I want to say weigh right at 10 ton. Okay. So, you're, you know, it, it, it's, it's around a ton. And uh, I think the old steel covers used to weigh five ton. And a roll top might have even weighed 10 ton. And so, it, you know, it's a substantial difference in the carrying capacity uh, when we went to these really light high cube covers. Uh, and then, of course, you know, if you're, if you're in the grain business, uh, you know, that's how they really built the export grain elevators were around handling uh, a pretty standardized cover. And I, I want to say we're down to eight or nine fiberglass uh, a piece cover today is the standard. Uh, and, and I think, uh, you know, if you go to the Gulf, you'll see that standardization throughout all of the grain export elevators. They, they absolutely uh, hate roll tops. I'm not even sure they'll load roll tops anymore. And if they'll load them, they won't unload them in the Gulf. So uh, you're, you're down to maybe 500 roll tops left in the industry, if that many. And, and those are going to be around very specialized trades, steel, lime, cement, things where you have to really be able to close the barge up quickly to keep the cargo dry because uh, they're expensive. They cost a lot more to build. Uh, back in the old days, it, it used to be $100,000 more, but it's it, it'd be much more than that today because a a set of fiberglass covers today is approaching a hundred thousand dollars, I believe. Um, which a barge today is is, a, you know, here within the last twelve months, barges were hopper barges were being priced at a million dollars. I I think they might be back down closer to eight fifty or nine hundred today. But when you think of the price of equipment to get into the business, uh, especially today, it's uh, more than double what it was just ten years ago and you think about building a new boat today and, you know, a new 6,000 horsepower boat, as I understand, it might cost you 17, 18 million dollars. And I think the vast majority of all of them built in the industry probably cost two to three million dollars. So uh, all of that stuff has changed significantly over the course of, of my career, for sure. And really in kind of the modern and current, you know, days of our industry. And then if, if I don't know if I can quote you on this or if you'll know this offhand but what does generally uh, an open hopper an open top barge weigh by itself yeah yeah uh, anywhere from 300 to 315 tons uh that difference just being some people put on heavier rub rails uh some people might put on stronger transoms uh, beefier slope sheets but you know for the most part it's going to weigh 300 to 315 tons and this is an interesting fact, too, I think your listeners might find. When you scrap a barge, it generally weighs about 200 tons. So what happens to 100 tons of the barge? It gets scraped off on bridge piers and lock walls and other barges. And uh, it's amazing, but you, you literally wear off a third of the barge's weight over the life of the barge, which is, you know, depending on the trade, 25 to 30 years. Uh, it, it's, it's pretty amazing when you think about it. I agree. I agree completely. Well, all right. So backtracking to your uh, 
I guess a bit more of your story. Uh, tell me what you can about the histories of Memco, AEP, and ACBL. Well, may, maybe the, the the history of the industry. Uh, again, I'm talking on the dry cargo side, uh, but these numbers are are really talking about uh, in the dry cargo and the tank barge industry as a whole. As best as I could track when we were doing this history for our our book at ACBL, and then just you know more recently keeping track of how many barges there are and that um, there have been about 80 mergers over the course of uh, kind of the modern and current era. Uh, post-World War II, if you will. Um, today, uh, there are about 30 operators on the dry cargo side, and there's about 30 operators on the tank barge side. Uh, I think what's the interesting number is the six largest dry cargo operators of covered barges uh, operate about 80% of them. Uh, Crowns comes in as the largest open top operator and, and uh, has a, a pretty significant share of the market in that regard. And I think if you look over on the tank barge side, you would see that the top six or seven players there operate nearly, you know, 80% of the barges being operated. And, uh, you know, I, I think one other a, a difference over the course of that time is uh, who owns the uh, equipment in the industry, uh, who operates it, uh, which is sometimes different than that used to not always be the case. If it was an ACBL barge, well, of course, ACBL owned it and, and uh, they operated it. But, but today, the, the capitalization of the industry has changed a lot. There are private investors. There are uh, uh, other financial investors. There are insurance companies and banks that own barges and lease them or they're mortgaged. It's just a different business today. It, uh, there used to be a, 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 it seems like to me, it's kind of, um, cycles through uh, corporate ownership to individual private ownership, back to corporate ownership, to public uh, ownership, to private equity ownership. Uh, it's certainly a lot different today than uh, what, it, what it has been over its past, and I'm sure it'll go through several more uh, evolutions as time goes by. Uh, certainly, Memco went from a, a very small uh, operator of um, managed barges. Uh, I want to say we're at four or 500 barges back in the early 90s. And uh, uh, we built 600 brand new barges. So we went from a, a barge manager to a barge owner operator. Uh, and then uh, AEP bought that barge line. And before that, they had bought OF Shear. Um, while I was at AEP, we bought probably four or five other smaller operators uh, like Sun and Olympic and Blasky and uh, Rushing and uh, th there's a few others around there. Um, and then when we merged with ACBL, of course, ACBL had been, you know, uh, at least on the dry cargo side, the largest aggregator, you know, in the industry with Valley Line and, and uh, Sioux City, New Orleans and Security and National Marine. And, you know, it goes on and on. And Orrin talked to this as well, certainly Ingram has been a, a large aggregator uh, uh, as well. Uh, maybe not as many, but larger bites, you know, uh, uh, buying off, as he mentioned, uh, federal barge lines and uh, Ohio barge line. And uh, seems like they maybe bought a liquid one somewhere along the way. But anyway, there, I, I, I think the what we've seen over the course of the last 20 to, to 30 years is 
you know, just consolidation uh, in a big way. I, I remember when uh, the Valley Line sold uh, uh, to ACBL, uh, you know, they were known as one of the biggest barge lines. I think they had 910 barges. Uh, sitting here today, you know, most people would uh, would would uh, argue whether or not that'd be a large barge line today. Uh, when you have people out there operating three, four, maybe even you know close to five thousand pieces of equipment, so uh, I don't know. It seems like I've gotten off on a rabbit trail from what you had asked me <laughs> originally, but uh, you know, just I, I, I would say. I would define the current era as a, a area of consolidation, a period of consolidation, refinement. Uh, certainly, you have to talk about all the big boats that got built, you know, starting back in the, I guess, in the mid-70s, mid to late 70s. It seemed like everybody had to have a 10,000 horsepower boat. Uh, we've probably refined that to, to some degree over the years. But, uh, you know, there's, I think there's only... Gosh, I used to know this number by heart too. I, I want to say there's like 60, 10,000 horsepower boats and another hundred uh, boats between uh, 6,600 and uh, 9,000. Uh, and, and that grew and matured very quickly. And then it was over. Uh, you know, uh, I think John Eckstein over at Marquette built three 9,200s over the course of the last decade or so. But you look back, uh, we haven't been building any 10,000 horsepower boats in a long time. The kind of 6,000 horsepower boats become the workhorse, go anywhere, do anything boat of the industry to, to some degree. Again, not, not referencing the canals, but even over on the liquid side, you've seen a, a real change of, of boat power where, you know, uh, probably less of a standardization there, but, you know, you got all these twin screw 2,000, 2,500 horsepower boats that, are kind of the standard, you know, workhorse of that industry as well. And we've seen lots of modernization and all of those things. If you want to touch on, on sort of the history briefly, the history and development of Memco and then how AEP got into uh, the tugboat industry and then when ACBL, just, just very brief. I know you said there's a, there's a book all about ACBL's hundred year history. Yeah. But. Well, I think, uh, again, I, I, I know somebody will come on and, and, uh, help us out with that. I, I want to say Memco was formed somewhere in the early to mid eighties and, uh, ran through a sale to electric fuels corporation, which, uh, was a division of Florida power, um, uh, and then they concentrated on hauling coal uh, until probably sometime in the early 90s. Uh, I think electric fuels bought them around 90, 90, 91, 92. Uh, and they did that uh, until uh, 2000 when uh, AEP bought them. And uh, AEP had, uh, yeah. Uh, before you get to that, explain to me a barge management company versus a barge operator. You said Memco originally had 500 barges and was a barge management company. What does that mean versus what I know of, you know, the Ingrams and ACBLs? Yeah, so uh, you would have uh, private investors would own barges. Like I was talking about the doctors, the lawyers, the financial investors would own barges. And they would own them primarily for the tax benefits more so than anything else. And so they didn't know how to operate them. They, they normally did not own towboats. They, 
certainly didn't have the personnel and the expertise. So Memco stood up a company that, that had the expertise, knew how to operate a barge, uh, had access to horsepower. So back in those days, you would charter in horsepower. There were a lot of people that just ran boats. There were a lot of tramp towing boats out, boats that you could charter fully found. Uh, a lot of people, uh, Huffman went through a period of time where Huffman did a lot of that, uh, you know, operated uh, investors boats and, and uh, towed for other people. Remember GW Gladders, they were around, they did a lot of towing uh, for people. Um, and so you would literally uh, charge them a flat rate of maybe, uh, I, I wanna say the market today is somewhere around 10 to $15 a day to manage the barge and a percentage of the income. So maybe 3% of the gross income. So that gave you an incentive as a management company to uh, take good care of the barge because you got compensated in that daily management fee of $10 a day. Back in the Memcos days, that might've been $7, but you got paid a flat rate to take care of the barge. So uh, you, would, you would manage the operation of the barge. Uh, you would uh, also be responsible to find the revenue for the barge and then return the balance to the owner. So you would go out and find a customer, find a way to get the barge to them, get it loaded, move it, uh, clean it, repair it, subtract all of that from the revenue, take your 3% of the gross, take out your daily management fee and then send the investor the balance. And so you did not have the capital invested in the business, uh, the barge owner, actually had the capital invested in the business. Now, while I say that, certainly Memco uh, over a period of time bought their own barges and, and even managed barges for their own family and things like that. So uh, I don't, I don't want to think that that's all they did, but that, that's what they started with was, I think, I think Chris would tell you they, they had a checkbook in hand and, and, and they knew how barges ran up and down the river. And uh, his dad was building these barges over at St. Louis ship, I think. And, uh, you know, his customers uh, were really, as I said, buying them for the tax reasons, and then they would just tie them up and, uh, you know, saying, hey, here's a better mousetrap. Let's run them. Let's operate them. Uh, you'll get a return. And uh, I think that all was a good plan. But then, you know, when the grain embargo came and we really kind of uh, negatively impacted the grain market for that period of time, uh, and then the tax laws changed too, you know. A lot of the building that we saw, you know, uh, uh, during the teens, the 2000, call it 2010 to 2020, uh, a lot of that was driven by uh, tax incentives as well, where you got an accelerated depreciation on your barges. You could build a barge for half a million dollars and get a half a million dollar deduction uh, right off your taxes. So um, somebody needed to operate that. So. You know, Memco had, uh, you know, had salespeople, had barge dispatchers, had barge maintenance groups. Uh, as they grew, then they needed a fleet in the Gulf to be able to hold the barges, maintain them. Then they needed towboats to move them. They developed uh, a, a joint venture with Scott Showtan called Show Me. They, they bought a couple boats uh, and, and operated them. Matter of fact, uh, one of them might have been one of the former Gladders boats. Um, and then, you know, so over a period of time, they just kept stacking them on top. You know, here become another hundred barges, another hundred barges and and uh, more boats and then formed Metco. And 
and uh, built boats and bought boats. And uh, I think over that period of time went, uh, you know, from their beginnings again, sometime in the eighties to 2000, they, uh, I, I want to say we had a dozen boats and 600 barges and a pretty good size operation in the Gulf. So uh, uh, that's, that's what Memco did. And uh, the last portion of its career, they were, uh, primarily a, around to deliver coal to uh, international marine terminals, which they owned as well. And uh, that coal then went to Florida to power the Big Bend uh, station uh, uh, just down from uh, Tampa. And uh, as that business, uh, you know, matured and, and got really good at it, uh, what do you do next? Well, then we started to build a commercial barge line around that. And, uh, I remember working with Chris on that, what we call the whole enchilada. We went to him and said, we want to build 600 barges and five or six towboats. And I think we built the 600 barges and three 8,000 horsepower towboats. And that took us through the year 2000. And uh, they had already sold the company to Electric Fuels Corporation that the Parsonage family had. I, I want to say around 90, 91, 92, something like that. And... Uh, so then Electric Fuels, which was a division of Tampa, or uh, I'm sorry, a division of Florida Power was purchased by Carolina Power and Light. Carolina Power and Light was a landlocked utility based out of Raleigh, North Carolina, um, had no idea you know, what barges were and had no interest in, in barges. And um, so they put, they put the barge line up for sale uh, right away. And it took about a year to, to, to go, work through that process. And as they worked through that process, they found a buyer and the buyer uh, was a deregulated uh, piece of American electric power. And uh, this was ran by a former commodity trader. And uh, their idea was to uh, kind of capture the coal market on the Ohio River uh, and at the time, they were going to buy the uh, Ohio River Company and uh, Memco Barge Line. And uh, this is all through uh, the year. And then 9-11 hit. And when 9-11 hit, everybody took a pause. And uh, I got a phone call. Uh, I remember getting a phone call from AEP. And they're saying, you know, uh, we, we're not really sure what to do. You know, the world is going to change and just kind of, you know, put everything on hold for a minute. Uh, they were able to unwind the Ohio River Company deal, uh, which then allowed Ingram to buy Ohio River Company. And, uh, but they could not unwind the deal with uh, Carolina Power and Light. So they ended up with uh, Memco Barge Line. And uh, I had a great working relationship with a guy there that ran, uh, Back in those days, they called it uh, RTD, the River Transportation Division of AEP. Everybody called it RTD. And uh, a guy there by the name of Keith Darling. And uh, as we put the two companies together, Keith came over and, and ran operations. And uh, I think when we melded the two companies together, uh, AEP had uh, 600 barges and uh, uh, 12 or 15 uh, towboats, a very nice boat fleet. And uh, I think that's right. Yeah, they, I, I want it. Yeah, around 600 barges and a dozen boats. And we combined the two 
uh, AP and Memco and ended up with 1800 barges. And then over the course of the next 10 years, uh, through acquisition, acquisitions and a building program, uh, we doubled the size of that company up to about 3,600 barges. Uh, and then I left there in 11 and went to work for ACBL, uh, who then actually acquired uh, AP River Operations in 2015. And uh, that's what you see with uh, ACBL today is the combination of these two companies along with all the other ones uh, that they had acquired. Uh, not, not a lot changing, just, you know, uh, less people doing the same amount of work, <laughs> uh, working smarter, uh, hopefully, uh, versus harder. Uh, systems have taken a, a, a lot of, uh, have provided a lot of opportunity and taken away a lot of the mundane work. But you, you work in that area, or you work, congratulations on your promotion, you're uh, getting away from that day-to-day -day and more into the future, but uh, as you know, systems and I'm talking about computer systems that really allowed us to do uh, so much more today and manage uh, fleets. You know, you, I, I remember back in the day we had barge boards, you know, with barge numbers up on them and, and uh, you could only move so many of those around a day, but uh, heck today you can manage 4,000 barges on a computer screen uh, with a good team. And uh, so it's really changed the industry in that regard. Yes, sir. Uh, explain what, what you can for the listeners uh, of matching barge capacity to customer need, uh, the whole process from sales leads to delivery. Well, you know, in uh, most of the time, uh, you want your barge to be utilized uh, every single day. I mean, that uh, there, there's two common denominators that we measure uh, cost and success in our industry, and that's barge days and ton miles, either revenue per ton mile or, or cost per ton mile, and then the number of days it takes to do it. So um, things change by the season, Tim, because it's a supply demand world. Uh, for the most part, we're at equilibrium in, in the industry today. We haven't always been, uh, for the most part, we've generally been long supply because once you build a barge, it lasts 30 years. So you better be right when you make that decision. And and only recently, and I say recently, within the last decade or so, have we finally retired all of those investment barges that were built that uh, were, were kind of overshadowed our industry for a long time. Um, so for most of the time, you, you want to have a barge come up the river loaded and turn around and go back down the river loaded. And I think, you know, something that people would probably uh, catch on to uh, uh, fairly easily would uh, taking a barge load of fertilizer from the Gulf up to Peoria, Illinois, and discharging that fertilizer and turn around and load that with uh, soybeans and, and come back to the Gulf Coast. And um, the grain portion of it is relatively easy. Uh, where it used to be just an open cry pit system where uh, people would shout out, you know, I need a barge at this rate and I've got one at this rate today. It's, uh, you know, it's just uh, telephone conversations and text exchanges and emails. And uh, but basically the, the big grain originators. Uh, so I'm talking about uh, ADM and Cargill and CGB and Bungie uh, for the most part and Harvest States. Those are the big ones. They're out every day looking for whatever freight they need that they can't cover themselves. So they will advertise either in a phone call or an email or, you know, call up their favorite barge line and say, hey, I, I need to 
move a barge load of grain next week from Peoria to the Gulf. And uh, if you're ACBL or, or Ingram or, or uh, CGB or what, you know, one of the larger grain carriers, you're going to say, okay, I've got a barge there and it's tr currently trading at 400% of tariff and uh, I'll sell it to you for that. And um, there's kind of standard terms and conditions that exist and uh, you make a deal. And so let's say that we've decided to load that barge at Peoria for 400% and take it to the Gulf. Um, so the freight rate, you know, uh, there, there is a system of, of uh, freight rates that exist, Tim, that stair-step their way up from the Gulf out of the way to Chicago, all the way to St. Paul, uh, up to Cincinnati, that, that essentially say, if you moved a barge under normal operating conditions from Vicksburg at 100% of tariff, uh, you would essentially get paid the same amount of earnings as if you moved one from Hennepin uh, at 100% of tariff. Uh, that's the way the system was thought out. So uh, tariff at Vicksburg might be 237 a ton, $2.37 a ton, and the tariff at Hennepin is $5.07 a ton. So therefore you get paid more because you've went further away. Uh, so that's fairly easy to understand. And then demand says, okay, well, I know you've got these tariff differentials by how far away we are, which really relates to a physical distance, if you will. Um, but now, uh, you know, there's more demand at Peoria than there is at Pittsburgh. So uh, I might want to charge you more than tariff uh, to go all the way up to Hennepin. And uh, at the same time, these tariff numbers were established in 1973 at 1973 costs. And uh, I may not have to remind you, but diesel fuel probably cost less than a quarter a gallon. And uh, my guess is pilots were making um, maybe a hundred bucks a day. Deckhands were probably making 10, $15 a day. So, you know, totally different world, but those were established. So over, over time, the percent of tariff that you move at has moved up to, you know, keep up with inflation and demand. So let's say you've agreed to move this barge out of Hennepin for 20, uh, for two or 400% of the tariff, the tariff's $5. So you've agreed to move it for $20 a ton. Now you're going to want to make sure that they load that barge as heavy as they can load it to the maximum draft to get the maximum payload. So you're getting paid $4, a uh, uh, $20 a ton. I want to load that barge to, to 10 foot because there's a little extra water on the Illinois River. So I'm going to load it with 1,750 tons of soybeans at $20 a ton. And so the customer agrees to do that. And under the standard terms and conditions, they get three days to load the barge and three days to unload the barge. So you constructively place the barge, which means the barge is available for you to load. And they generally do that at 0700 uh, every day. And so they place the barge for you to load. Now you as the shipper, the guy that has the soybeans, you're gonna call that barge over from the fleet. So a tug is gonna shift that empty barge over to your dock. You're gonna load that barge. And, and then that barge is gonna shift back over to the fleet. And of course that costs four or $500 each way to do that or, or some 
multiple of that, depending on where you are. And then that barge will sit there generally for two or three days and a line boat will come by and pick it up. And if you're coming out of Peoria, you know, probably a 5,000 horsepower boat is going to pick it up, probably take it to St. Louis, probably drop it in a St. Louis fleet uh, where they'll aggregate 25 of those together and have a 6,000 horsepower boat take them out of there towards the Gulf. Uh, or if you're a bigger operator, you might leave there with 30 uh, and pick up another five at Cairo or uh, even leave out a Cairo with 40 or, or, or 46 and take that barge down to the Gulf. So now you're paying for all of that. The, the tower, the barge line is paying to have the barge towed from, from Peoria down to St. Louis, interchange, drop it off the tow into the fleet, hold it for a few days, gather up the rest of the barges, bring it out. A big boat picks it up and takes it a thousand miles down to the Gulf, drops it in a fleet, gets broken out of the fleet, gets held there, puts on lineup, and uh, it gets shifted to an export elevator. They unload it, it gets shifted back and you clean it. So the barge company has paid to tow the barge, um, uh, you know, give or take uh, from Peoria. So, so 200 and 25 miles to St. Louis, another 1,050 miles down to the, to the Gulf Coast, drop it into a fleet to and from the elevator and back. Uh, all of that's going to cost, say, $15,000. And, uh, you know, he's getting paid 20 times 1750 So he's getting paid $35,000. He's got to subtract all of that cost and then clean it and repair it. So, you know, maybe he's made you know, somewhere around $20,000 on the barge. Got paid 35, spent 15, maybe spent 20. And so he's got that balance left over, but he had to get the barge up there. And it's not free to take a barge, uh, you know, 1,300 miles up the river. So typically what you do is, is uh, you'll, you'll either have spot contracts or, or annual contracts to move fertilizer back up the river. And uh, let's just say you're, you're moving fertilizer for CF Industries out of Donaldsonville, Louisiana, and you owe them five barges a week. And their preference is they want to load a barge every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. So you make barges available for them to load on those days. And in doing so, in exchange for that, uh, they will pay you, uh, let's say in today's environment, they'll pay you $20 a ton to go up to Peoria. So again, the same thing, you're going to load the barge, you're going to get a certain number of free days to load the barge, you're going to shift it from the fleet over there, they're going to load it, you're going to shift it back to the fleet, build it into a big tow to go up the river. Uh, if you're at ACBL, you're going to build it into a big tow to probably go northbound on a 10,000 horsepower boat to Cairo. Then you're going to bust up uh, maybe 40 or 50 barge northbound tow into two or three tows to go up the Ohio and up the upper and up the Illinois. And you're going to have a, another 6,000 horsepower boat take it from Cairo and, and bypass St. Louis and go right up the Illinois River. And so it's kind of the exact opposite thing, although it generally costs more to go up the river than it does to come down the river. Uh, that being said, the bigger the boat that you use, the more barges you move at a time, generally the cheaper it is per ton mile to do that. So 
In this case, we've told CF Industries, we'll give you a barge, you know, every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday for the year. So we'll load 250 barges a year with you for $20 a ton. We'll give you two or three days to load it, three or four days to unload it. We'll maximize the amount of money that we'll spend to clean it after you unload it, which incentivizes you to get all your product out of the barge. You know, when you go unload a fertilizer barge, some terminals will put a bobcat and a man with a broom down there in a bucket and get every kernel of, or, you know, every pearl of fertilizer out of the barge. And sometimes you'll, you know, take it to another dock and uh, they'll leave a pickup truck load of fertilizer in the barge. So uh, you generally try to put minimum and maximums on cost and revenue so that you really know what you've got. And then all of that, of course, uh, because we, we contract from carriage or for carriage of the goods from A to B, uh, the quicker you do it, the more money you make. Uh, so it's, it's, it's not uh, a lot different uh, than, than most modes of transportation. You're highly incentivized to move it as fast as you can. So in, in a good season of operating conditions, uh, you know, you can run those numbers. You generally make uh, 100 miles a day on, the, on a Lachlan River and uh, 200 miles a day southbound on the lower and 100 miles a day northbound. You can kind of run through that math and pretty soon you're like, okay, if I can maybe do all of that in 40 days. I get paid the same amount of money if it took me two months to do it. So I'd make a lot less money if it's moving slowly. I'd like to make a lot more money if it's moving faster. So what you do is you, you add all of that revenue together, both the southbound revenue that you got paid $20 a ton. And this time you took 1,750 tons downriver because you knew what the river stages were. But when you loaded the barge to go back upriver to the Illinois, you had to limit it to, to nine foot because that's all the you know, core guarantees you as a nine foot channel. And by the time you get back up there, you know, you could be around to average pool. So now I'm at nine foot, I've lost 200 tons of payload. So now at, at $20 a ton going up the river, I'm only moving 1,550 tons, okay? So I get paid maybe 35,000 coming down the river. I maybe get paid 33,000 going up the river. Uh, I collect all that revenue, add all that together, subtract all my costs. I'm left with a, a net of maybe, in this case, a lot of the times you'll you'll end up getting the barge upstream uh, by just really covering your cost. A lot of times that's the way the northbound works uh, is it basically pays you to get up the river and you make all your money coming down the river. Uh, so we had said that, uh, okay, we had made um, maybe $20,000 on the first leg and uh, we did all of that uh, in uh, a 40 day round trip. Uh, so you simply just take your $20,000 and you divide it by 40 days and you've made $500 a barge day. Um, that is a, a pretty good earnings. Uh, I think most people shoot for somewhere between two and $300 a day today uh, on barge earnings. Um, if you had to replace barges, that's about what it would cost you to, 
own and operate a barge today is is somewhere probably around two hundred dollars a day. So uh, you've got to make something north of that before you put any of that money in your pocket. And then of course you've got all of the overhead that goes along with it. You've got to pay that too, and that can run I don't know ten to fifteen dollars a day. So you know there's a lot of things that come out of that. I'm always uh, amazed that how uh, how rich people <laughs> that work in the industry think the barge owner is. But uh, I can tell you, uh, uh, whether we like it or not, we generally make money about two out of every 10 years. And uh, it, it's a very tough business uh, to excel in uh, because there's so much competition and because so much of the equipment is, is controlled by the shipper. And so therefore the shipper knows what the costs are because they run their own barges and they're sure as heck not going to pay you a nickel more than what they have to to get that done. So, you know, no different than, you know, if you called up a truck broker, you, you know, the shippers always look for the best price. Uh, now there is some reliability, performance, quality. Uh, some of those things come into mind as well. It, it kind of depends on who you're working for and what their ethos are, uh, you know, within their company. But, but that's kind of generally how that works. Um, most of the grain trades on the spot market, uh, most of the northbound trades on uh, generally annual contracts. Um, the really big shippers like Wholesome Big Cement Company, uh, big steel companies like Nucor and U.S. Steel, um, really big fertilizer shippers, uh, big salt shippers, they'll all contract multi-years two, three, maybe even five-year contracts. Uh, utility companies used to be in that market as well. So uh, most of the time, uh, the shippers find the barge lines is, has been my experience because, uh, uh, you know, I think it all, uh, you know, it kind of all gets down to what do you want, Tim? Uh, and, and you want a hot water heater, right? So, well, how do we get one? Well, we got to haul, you know, uh, white goods up to Knoxville where they make them and uh, haul them back out of there. So, uh, you know, these traffic patterns get developed uh, a basis where people live and what the demand is. Now, most of that's been done over the course of time. You know, the Ohio River being a very industrial power generation river, uh, you know, a lot of that's based on Mother Nature, uh, where the ores and uh, you know, what nature provides us, where those come from. Uh, of course, the Illinois and the upper, much more, uh, you know, bread basket, uh, much more grain. Uh, you know, so, so many of those patterns got developed over long periods of time. So uh, I guess when the first barge and the first hunk of coal came together, uh, I think that was back in about 1915 on the Kentucky River somewhere. But today, those patterns are pretty well established. Um, Nucor certainly knows who the major barge carriers are, who can supply them with their needs. Uh, they've used all of them over the course of time, so they know who's reliable and who's dependable, who they can count on for good quality equipment. And, uh, you know, it, it's no different than, uh, you know, you go into the grocery store and you got a choice to pick out a lot of different canned goods or, or frozen products, and which ones do you pick out? The ones you like. Uh, and generally, it's for different reasons. It's for the quality or it's for the price or it, it's the size of the packaging or 
uh, you know, barging is really, uh, it's not a very complex uh, deal. You're, you're buying the transport of your goods from point A to point B. Uh, it can get complicated to, um, uh, to execute on, but uh, the contracting is, is pretty simple. Uh, there, there are um, force majeure uh, language in, in most contracts, not all, but most contracts have force majeure clauses that protect both the shipper and the carrier, the carrier being the barge company, uh, from uh, uh, things outside of their control. So, you know, typical language is strikes, riots, civil commotion, and mother nature. So uh, in our industry, what we generally face is high water, low water, ice. Um, I, you know, we do have some uh, strikes, riots, uh, governmental intervention. So lot closures, uh, you know, uh, come into mind uh, more so, uh, which the good news is we're getting a lot more money to take care of our locks and dams. The bad news is uh, it takes time to do that. So we have a lot more lot closures. Uh, but I think as we go through this next decade, uh, you're going to see the system improve uh, dramatically come, you know, with reference to reliability. Uh, explain to me, because I really don't know, the, the structure, I guess, and development of the grain market. Why were tariffs set in 73 and now today we're tr selling at 400% of tariff? Why was that never adjusted? Why was it structured the way it was? Do you know? Well, I, I, and again, I'm not an expert in this. I think you would find some uh, old grain shippers or grain carriers that, that might, you know, I think you get comments on some of these that might come in and help us. But I think it was just purely the fact that the, the regulatory body uh, went away. So the Waterways Freight Bureau used to be the regulatory body over the barge industry, and uh, uh, they deregulated the industry, I think, in 1973. So you had this set of numbers that were all set in place. Uh, and so as uh, you know, inflation came along, people would say, well, I can no longer do that at the tariff. Uh, I, I remember back in the late 70s, early 80s, things traded at 110% of tariff, 120% of tariff. Um, we didn't see numbers like we see today until you know, the more recent times. But as I said, you know, going back to 1973, I really don't know what diesel was. I'm, I'm sure it was less than a quarter. It might have been less than a dime. Uh, I do remember the wages a bit uh, because I was working then making $15 a day. And I remember my dad was making 100 bucks a day. And I was thinking like, man, if I could ever get there, how good would life be then, right? So you just think about all the inflation has taken place and the market just tries to keep that inflation uh, revenue to cover the inflation that, that we've seen. So uh, also, you know, all the northbound was regulated. So you, you in, the, in the old days, you would just get out your book and say, here's the regulated price to haul steel from New Orleans to Chicago. And you got paid that much money. There was no, no debate about it. Uh, and, and, you know, airlines were that way, trucking companies were that way, a telephone, you know, everything was regulated. Every, in my lifetime, everything's been deregulated. And, you know, one could argue whether that's for the betterment or not. But uh, I think overall, you can do about anything that you need to do today in a non-regulated environment. So that, that's where that comes from. 
is the Waterways Freight Bureau uh, just went away. And when it went away, whatever they had published is what they had published. Uh, they do use that as a guideline, but since then the National Grain and Feed Association has developed barge, tra uh, uh, barge freight, let's see, how do they say it? Grain barge freight trading rules. Uh, but, but they're basically, uh, you know, the same that they've always been. Uh, there's, there's, you know, it's iterative in price to keep up with inflation where it used to be, you know, used to be standards for year was, you know, five free days to load, five to unload, $100 a day for 10 days and $200 a day for 10 days and $300 a day thereafter. Well, now it's like three and three and I think that, you know, the demurrage is, is, you know, approaching three and $400 a day. Cause that's just what it costs. You know, I think what people lose sight of is the entry costs, the capital costs today are just so much greater. As I mentioned early on, you're dealing with million dollar barges, this on the dry cargo side, again, tank barges are multiples of that, but you know, you're dealing with, um, million dollar barges, uh, what we think about as, as little boats uh, today cost six or $7 million, a mid-range boat, a, a, a 6,000 is going to cost you 16, $17 million. And the people that, that work on those boats, deckhands make from, you know, $250 a day, uh, give or take up, up to, you know, sky's the limit competition. Right. And, and you got pilots that, you know, make from, 800 to a thousand dollars a day and you know everything just has, has went up so much that uh you know you now need multiples of those prices just to, to keep even uh ideally the hundred percent of tariff gave you a, a uh enough of a margin that would would you know incite you to uh invest in barges and, and build the equipment uh i think today break even out of St. Louis is, you know, somewhere around 400% of tariff. So, you know, that's just the equivalent of what inflation in our business has been uh, over what is that 27, 50 years. It's, it's went up four times. So I, I don't know what that comes down to uh, if we looked at that uh, on an annual basis, but it uh, seems reasonable uh, when you think about it. Well, Mr. Kanoy, that just about does it for this one. Uh, I do appreciate your time again. Anything else to share? No, I, I you know, look, I, uh, uh, I've always been passionate about the barge business, and uh, I love the opportunity to share. Uh, in the end, that's all I really have is my experiences and the knowledge I've gained uh, over the course of my career. So, uh, you know, whatever your listeners are looking for, and uh, if I can help uh, educate, I'm, I'm happy to do that. Well, come to think of it, as I'm listening to you speak, uh, one final question unrelated to everything we just covered. Uh, have, how many episodes of this show have you watched? Well, be, because I was honored to be, uh, uh, you know, get to watch it the first time. I, I've, I've watched all of them that uh, I thought had, you know, some, in, well, I guess I've watched all of them. The, yeah, not, not, some of them aren't, uh, maybe my cup of tea quite as much as the others, but I, I, I love all these stories about what's going on in the river industry. And, uh, 
Uh, it, it's great to hear the next generation coming along. I think that's really exciting. Um, it, it, it's just been a good industry. I, I've really enjoyed working in it. It's provided great living for, for me and my family and many, many, many of my teammates over the years. So, uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I, uh, when I was working, I never had time uh, for social media. And uh, since I retired, I'm fascinated with how much knowledge is at your fingertips, whether it be through the podcast like you do or YouTube or TikTok. And I, 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 the ag community and, and towboats and barges are all over, you know, Facebook and anything, Instagram. It's just amazing what's out there and what you can learn. And I'm just fascinated with it because I just I never had time to browse around social media when I was working. Uh, uh, I just just, you know, had so much else to read. Uh, so I, I find it interesting. I, I like it. I, I'm, I, I guess to some degree, this is my only um, input. Otherwise, I, I just take from it. I uh, I'm not one that's going to post very much. Once in a while, if I catch a big fish, I might show my friends out there but otherwise I, I don't post i just take well i got you do you want to tell me about uh, what your life has been the last month and a half since we last spoke well it doesn't have a whole lot to do with the river business I, I think i told you i've got a son that lives in california so we spent the month of january out in california with our uh, two-year-old granddaughter maxine and we just learned that we're going to have another granddaughter uh, in california in august and uh, so then I've been home for uh, a couple of weeks and went to Mexico to go fishing for a week, uh, fishing, which was really nice. And uh, uh, actually going back here in another week to go fishing again. So uh, and, and avoid some of the cold weather. So uh, not not very much of barging. I, I can't I can't think of anything I really miss about work other than the people and the, the intellectual challenge and. Uh, so I guess that's a couple things I miss. I, I miss the challenge. I miss the people. A lot of great people in our industry. You know, I, I think it's uh, over the years, we saw a lot of people come from other industries, especially other transportation industries. I, I don't know what it is that, that brings us together where we're fierce competitors, but then we all go to Mardi Gras together or, or some convention, you know, and I, I think it's the, the, the part about helping the Mariner that brings us all together, you know, when when people have an accident, they, they don't say who did that and how it happened. They say, how can I help? What can I do to help? And uh, I think it's uh, I think it's a pretty cool industry in that regard that we all work together to make it successful for uh, all of the customers and, and, and employees and owners in the industry. It's a pretty cool industry in that regard. Well, as I said, sir, thank you very much again for your time. All right. Thank you, Tim. Take care. See you next time. All right. Bye-bye.